following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Passage that uh, can stir our imagination at many levels, and... um, not least of which this picture of this idea of, of final judgment, of, of hell, of Hades. And admittedly, this is a, uh, a tough concept, not one preachers really love to preach about. Um, and it's been hard for, increasingly hard for the modern evangelical church to grasp this concept. And uh, more and more people are throwing out the idea of hell as something that a loving God just could not do. And uh, more and more universalism, the idea that eventually God will save everybody, uh, is gaining uh, a following uh, among even very conservative evangelical Christians um, because it's, it's hard for us to imagine and grasp this idea that a caring, loving, merciful God could somehow condemn people eternally to misery and suffering. And so admittedly, it's a hard subject. And... Um, and honestly, we shouldn't love the idea, right? There were some periods in history where people liked the idea of hell way too much, right? Uh, it should be hard, and it should be something that is difficult for us to wrestle with. And, and it's not something God intends for us to like or enjoy, right? It's not, that's not what it's about. Um, it's understandable that we should wrestle with um, the concept. However, it's also equally clear in Scripture that the, the Bible teaches plainly of a place of eternal judgment, a place of torment, a place of anguish, and a place of final judgment. Uh, what's more than that, not only does the Bible in general teach it, but Jesus teaches it. Right? And so in this passage, Jesus talks about the reality of final judgment, that you can end up in a place and in a situation where you are separated from God and from everything good. Right? Uh, so we want to look at that and unpack it and try to understand what this is about and how it is that a loving God who is gracious and merciful could allow this to happen. Now, there's some things we can't answer this morning. Uh, we can't answer things like the sovereignty of God and um, why God made us this way. We just don't have time for that. Uh, if you have questions, we can go there. But I want to at least unpack a little bit of the problem. Right? At least a piece of it. Um, so let's look at the story. Great parable we're probably all quite familiar with, the rich man and Lazarus. Um, the setting starts off on earth, and it says there was a rich man clothed in purple, fine linen, and feasted sumptuously every day. And, uh, and contrasting that is at his gate is laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, desiring to eat what's at the rich man's table, uh, the dogs coming and licking his sores. Two very, very extreme pictures of wealth and poverty. The rich man is extremely wealthy. Uh, He's really described in the language of of a king, right? A purple royal robe that would be not just worn by somebody wealthy, but somebody extremely wealthy. Uh, It says that he daily feasts on sumptuous food, right? It doesn't mean that every once in a while he has a nice party. It means daily All day long, he is banqueting on the very best of the very best. Extravagant meals, right? Uh, The kind of things you would imagine in in Solomon's palace. 
right? Extraordinary wealth, uh, over the top, right? And unlike the prodigal son, which a lot of chapter 16 uh, connects with chapter 15, and unlike the prodigal son, this guy can have every, whatever he wants and he never runs out, right? The prodigal son ran out. This guy seems to have unlimited wealth to enjoy whatever he wants day after day after day. On the other side is, 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 is Lazarus. <clears throat> it's interesting that Lazarus is the only character, the only figure in any of Jesus' parables who gets a name. And I think it's significant that this man of extreme poverty is still a somebody. Right? He's still a person. He's still a person created in God's image. But he is desperately poor. It says that he was laid at the rich man's gate. Uh, literally, it means he was chucked. He was thrown there. Right? Uh, he's he's uh, apparently some kind of has some kind of disability. He's lame, crippled, can't walk, or he's so sick he just can't move. And somebody just takes him by and sees this rich guy's palace, dumps him at his gate, thinking hopefully he can find some help there. Um, so he's he's crippled. He's there. He's begging. Uh, he's covered with sores. So he's got some kind of horrible skin disease on top of whatever disability he has. Um, and it says that he longs to eat the crumbs at the rich man's table. That could mean one of two things. It could mean simply the leftovers, the scraps, right, that were left over from the rich man's table. But it could also mean, the, the word that's used there, um, in those days they didn't have paper napkins, you know. And uh, if, you come, if you come from a country with real napkins, like, you know, big ones, you know, and you come to Thailand where a napkin is actually like one inch square, you kind of appreciate the value of a napkin, right? When your hands are all sticky and gooey, and it's nice to have something to really rub your hands off, you know, and clean your hands. Well, they didn't have even the Thai-sized napkins in, in Jesus' day. So what they would do is they would actually use bread as a napkin. So when you were done with your meal, you would take a piece of bread, and you would rub all your gooey fingers off on a piece of bread. And then they would chuck that on the floor, and the dogs would come eat it, right? Some commentators believe that's what he was longing for. Appetizing, right? Um, pretty hungry when that sounds good to you. But this guy's starving to death, right? He is hungry. He is covered with sores. He can't move. He must beg. He is longing for, uh, same, same word is used as the prodigal, longing for the pig food. This guy's longing for the scraps from the rich man's table. And on top of all that, on top of all that, uh, daily, the dogs come and lick his sores. Now, this is not Fido the pet poodle, right? This is a Thai soy street dog, right? Covered with, you know, all the nasty stuff that they have. This is not a clean dog. This is not a nice dog. This is a scavenger. And he can't even ward off and defend himself from the dogs coming and licking at his sores, right? He is a picture of extreme poverty and misery, uh, well, the, the, queen, the scene quickly changes. And uh, one of the lessons of this parable is that nothing lasts forever. Whatever situation you are in now, it is temporary. Life on this earth as it is, is temporary. Whether it's your misery or your good fortune, it all will come to an end in death. And death changes things forever. Notice uh, the scene in eternity, right? Uh, the poor man died, and he was carried by angels to Abraham's bosom, literally. 
The rich man also died, and he was buried. <clears throat> and it doesn't say how he got there, but uh, upon burial, he finds himself in Hades, um, a place of torment. And he lifted up his eyes, and he saw Abraham far off, and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to, send, to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. <clears throat> a great reversal takes place from their life on earth. Uh, the poor man is carried away by angels and he finds himself, himself in Abraham's bosom. Uh, to be in somebody's bosom, somebody's embrace, is to be in a place of, of close, dear affection. And it was a very honored position. And you see the picture of this in Jesus at the Last Supper when John is leaning against Jesus' bosom. It's a place of special connection and intimacy, right? So where Lazarus was nothing on earth, he finds himself in the most elevated and honored place at Abram's side. Uh, Jesus is probably using here uh, certainly the, the Jewish concept of the end life. And uh, for the Jews, they believe that everybody went to Hades, right? Uh, this is not a picture of final, the final resting place of heaven and hell as we would probably understand it from a New Testament concept. It was really the idea that, uh, that all people went to this kind of waiting, large waiting room, right, called Hades, the place of the dead. Um, but that Hades was not equal, that even there there was uh, clearly a separation. There were those who were headed to final judgment in hell. There were those who were headed to final ascent to heaven. Right, so, um, so they're in this place, and he's at Abraham's side, and uh, life is good for him. Everything he lacked, uh, he has gained back, and much, much more. Likewise, the rich man finds himself in also a very different place. Um, for him, it's very much a downhill journey, and he finds him place in a place where he describes as being really hot, I love his description here. I love his, his conversation. He sees Abraham far up. We don't know how that worked, but maybe he had really, really good vision and he can see far away. Uh, Abraham is not close. We discover later there's a great chasm that separates them. But he sees Abraham and he uh, calls out to Abraham. He says, man, is it hot here? I love that. <laughs> it's, uh, it's like, man, I just had no idea. Um, and it's a place of anguish and misery. And if the poor man's misery was horrible on earth, the picture here is of extremely uh, much worse misery for the rich man. Um, but I love his comment. He says, okay, man, it is hot here, right? It is hot here. And he cries out for mercy. Uh, but what does mercy look like? He says, hey, man, it is hot here. I'm dying. Maybe a little help, right? Abraham, and he appeals to Abraham as his father. Okay, so Jesus is picturing this as a Jew, a son of Abraham. He says, Father Abraham, how about a little mercy here? Right? Would you send Lazarus? And it's interesting, he knows who Lazarus is. Right? So this guy who was all those years out at his gate was not an unknown person. He knew who he was. He knew he had been out there. He remembered him. Right? And he notices Lazarus. He says, uh, Abraham, um, a little help. Could you send uh, that poor chump who somehow made it to your side, I don't know how, could you send him to serve me here in hell, right, by dipping his finger in some water and cooling my tongue a bit, right? 
I'm deserving of at least a little mercy. But notice how Abram answers him. Child, think back about your lifetime. Let's put this in perspective a little. Right? In your lifetime, you received many good things. Lazarus, in like manner, received bad things. And you didn't seem to care then, right? Uh, On those days, you walked by Lazarus and you did not give him the time of day. You did not give him one speck, one crumb from your table of mercy. It's interesting that now you feel a right to mercy. If God judges you by your own standard, why should he give you even a drop of water? Um, But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish, right? Um, in, in essence, Abraham says, look, you, you, now you know what it feels like, right? Now you know what it feels like to be ignored and overlooked and to, to, uh, to desperately long for even one drop of water, right? It's, it's not fun, is it, right? And, and the implication here is what an interesting turn of events that you who would not give one speck of mercy to Lazarus now are demanding that Lazarus come to you and serve you and would have the presumption that uh, my child Lazarus could be your slave and your servant or that he would want to, right? Of course, the interesting thing is the way grace and mercy works. I'm sure Lazarus is going, yeah, I'll do it, right? Because I know what it's like to be there. I would gladly go and put a drop of water on his tongue and minister to him in compassion. I would gladly have the compassion for him that he never had for me. Um, but, uh, but Abraham has one more word. He says, besides all that, all right, besides all that, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. Great gulf, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able to. It says, look, it's impossible for Lazarus to go to you. There's this, this chasm that cannot be crossed. And likewise, none may cross from there to us. Right? And the first really major point of this parable is simply this, that how we live here on earth and the choices we make, how we live in our relationship with God or lack thereof, matters for eternity. There is a great chasm fixed and it cannot be crossed. It is permanent. And the time that we get to decide which side of that chasm we end up on is in this life, here and now. Uh, The time of choosing is today. If we do not choose now, if we ignore, if we put it off, and we find ourselves there, there, aren't, there is no more choosing. There is no more opportunity. That's a great reminder for us. Uh, not the main point of the parable, really, but it's an important reminder for us that we should not live consumed with thoughts about today. Right? We should be people who don't even worry so much about the future, as in our temporary future. But we should be very concerned about our eternal future. Um, People want to hide behind the illusion that in the end, God will save everybody. Don't count on that, right? 
Scripture is very clear that you are given the opportunity, everybody is given the opportunity in this life to determine their eternal destiny. So be mindful, be mindful of eternity. Um, But that's really not the main point of the story. And the main part of the story really is in what comes next. What Jesus is getting at is really in the next section. Um, And it really gets back to the original question. Why can't the rich man get out? Right. Who put that chasm there in the first place and why can't it be bridged? I mean, God is eternal. He is infinitely powerful. Uh, Are you going to tell me that God is not able to figure that one out? Is God really not able to somehow bridge that, that chasm? Well, Jesus speaks to that in the next section. And actually, the rich man himself illustrates and teaches us why it's not possible. Um, Verse 27. So the rich man said, well then, in that case, I beg you, Father, to send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. It's interesting this guy is not without any compassion. right? He has compassion for his own family, even though he didn't have for Lazarus. And he's worried that his family is going to end up right where he is. Uh, there's a lot of theories and questions about why five brothers. Interesting number. Um, one interesting, we don't know for sure if this is what Luke or Jesus was getting at, but it's interesting that Herod, uh, King Herod, who was ruling at that time, who put Jesus on the cross or was part of it, happened to have five brothers and was a guy clothed in, in, in over-the-top royal robes and who uh, was known for his excesses, who was known for his daily sumptuous feasting. Uh, it could be that uh, Jesus is uh, kind of throwing him out there. Uh, he was also a half-Jew. Um, but that's not really the point. The point is that uh, the guy is concerned, the rich man is concerned about warning the lost, Right. Uh, he wants somebody to go and he thinks, you know, Lazarus was at the gate every day. If he can't serve me to bring me a drop of water, at least he could serve my brothers. Right. Still picturing Lazarus as like the great slave. Right. Send him as a messenger, because uh, if he comes from the dead, uh, that'll get their attention. Now, he doesn't suggest here necessarily resurrection. Uh, he just simply says if somebody comes from the dead, it's probably more the idea of, you know, if, if the ghost of Lazarus shows up in a vision or a dream or, in a, you know, an appearance, uh, that will get their attention. You know, that will wake them up. And Lazarus, you can tell them all about how, hey, I saw your brother and he's in hell and, and he, wanted you to, he wanted me to pass on that. It's really hot there, right? So bring a canteen. Um, he says, go warn them, right? Because... Uh, I know my brothers and I know where they're headed, right? They're not headed towards the other side, right? I know their lifestyle. I know what they're about. And you see, the, the, the rich man knows what got him there. He's not particularly surprised that he's there. And he knows where his brothers are headed. And he says, unless something intervenes in their life, they're headed exactly in the same place I am. So notice what, uh, what Abraham answers. He says this. Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to Scripture. 
You can listen to Scripture. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham said again to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced that somebody should rise from the dead. And this gets at the real heart of what Jesus is teaching here. The only witness, the only warning, the only thing that will keep anybody out of hell and lead them to heaven is Scripture. Jesus says plain and clear, they have the revelation of God revealed in the Word. They must listen to it. They must hear what Moses and the prophets are proclaiming because that is the only way they will come to truth and come to a place where they can change their destiny. Right? The only thing that can keep anybody out of hell is Scripture. That's what Jesus is saying here. Uh, Psalm 78 kind of sums this up brilliantly. And we could go through lots of the Old Testament and, and, and talk about what Moses and the prophets were teaching. But uh, Psalm 78 wraps it up brilliantly. And I'm not going to read the whole psalm, just a couple of pieces of it. But Psalm 78 says this. It starts off this way. Give ear, O my people. Give ear. Listen to my teaching. Incline your ears to my words. I will open my mouth in apparel. I will utter dark sayings from old things, things that we have heard and known that our fathers, like Moses, have told us. In other words, he starts off the psalm by saying, pay close attention to God's revelation from of old. Then a little later, he continues on. He says um, uh, that he gave, that is, God gave his instructions to Israel. God revealed what he wanted. Uh, He commanded our ancestors to teach them to their children so the next generation might know his commands. And they in turn their own children so that each generation should set its hope anew on God. Get this. Not forgetting his glorious miracles and obeying his commands. He says, look, if people don't pay attention to the miracles, the countless miracles recorded in Scripture especially around things like the Exodus. I mean, God did incredible miracles. He parted the Red Sea. He led them by a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. He cast out their enemies in dramatic ways. Look, if they don't pay attention to those miracles, little Lazarus showing up as a ghost is not going to impress them, right? right? If parting the Red Sea doesn't impact you, a guy in a sheet, you know, just isn't going to do it. Right? Um, he says, he says um, do not forget, don't let them forget his glorious miracles and in turn obey his commandments. Then they, that is future generations, will not be like their ancestors, stubborn, rebellious, unfaithful, refusing to give their hearts to God. He says, look, it's all there. It's all there, the, the miracles, the teaching, it's all there to, to turn people's hearts towards God, to choose to follow him to hear his voice and to respond, right? And then he goes on, and the rest of the psalm is a great overview of all the miracles and things God did to redeem Israel, to save them from, from the Egyptians and to give them a promised land. And then towards the end he says this, but in spite of this, in spite of all that God did, the people kept sinning. 
Despite his wonders, they refused to trust him. So he ended their lives in failure, their years in terror. When God began killing them, they finally sought him. They repented and took God seriously. Then they remembered that God was their rock, that God Most High was their Redeemer. You see, God's given many witnesses and many teachings, and the point of it all is simply that they would know they need a Redeemer. The psalmist says, it was after God finally starts killing them, when he brings them to a place of suffering and torment, in essence, a hell on earth, that they finally wake up and they do what? They repent. Right? They repent. And that was what was needed. And the rich man knows this. He says, look, if you would send Lazarus, then my brothers will do what? Will repent. The rich man knew he was there because he did not repent. Right? Repentance is the thing that is necessary for us to turn off the path towards eternal judgment and destruction and turn towards heaven. Repentance is turning away from sin. It is confessing our wicked and rebellious heart toward God, uh, our lack of faith in his love and care for them. Someone says they would not believe in God and they would not trust him to take care of them. We need to repent from our independence and our self-will and our desire to do it without God's help and turn to him as our Savior. Uh, We need to be rescued. And that's the point of Moses and the prophets, to teach them that they are wicked, rebellious people, to bring them to the end of themselves so they would cry out to God for mercy and would seek his forgiveness and grace. Um, But he says, look, if they will not turn to Scripture, if they will not pay attention to God's clear, clear revelation in Scripture, if they will not attend to it, there is no hope. There is nothing, there is absolutely nothing that will convince them otherwise. And the reality is when every person is confronted with God's Word, when every person is exposed to Scripture, They must make a choice about it. They must decide, is it truth that's come to us from God that reveals God's heart and will? And if so, will I believe it and follow it? Or they can reject it and make excuses for why it's not relevant for our own day or why it doesn't apply to them, Um, why uh, why they do not have to bow to its demands. Um, and, you know, if you're really following with me and you're the kind of uh, analytic thinker who argues a lot, at this point you should be thinking, well, yeah, but what about the people who don't have Scripture? Good point. What about those people? Well, we don't have time to go into that one today. Short answer. Short answer. God has revealed himself to them through creation, through their own conscience, right? And he will judge them according to the revelation they have. What they do with the revelation they're given is how God will judge them. But but here's the point for us. Uh, What are we doing to place Scripture before as many people as we possibly can? Uh, Our call, the Great Commission, 
is to put God's word in the hands and eyes and ears of every person we possibly can, right? So that they have the opportunity to choose Christ, right? So that through scripture, they're brought to a place of repentance and confession and seeking God and understanding the grace he has brought to them, revealed through ultimately through Christ on the cross, right? And, uh, and, the, and the point is this, um, Jesus is saying the only hope for people is Scripture. And and praise God, many of you are here, and you are here to do just that. You're involved with Bible translation. You're involved with Scripture engagement. You are uh, putting Scripture in different kinds of media. You're teaching. You're proclaiming Scripture. Praise God for you, right? Keep it up. Don't give up, right? Whatever opportunities you have, be putting Scripture in front of people, right? Be putting Scripture in front of people so that... They have the opportunity to know and to respond to God. Um, but, here, but here's one more catch in all this, right? If you're, again, if you're, if you're, if you're good arguer, you should, you should be coming up with a yeah, but. Okay, here's a yeah, but, right? The Pharisees loved Scripture, right? And Jesus is clearly pointing these teachings constantly at the Jews and at the Pharisees, right? The rich man was the Pharisee. Uh, they loved Scripture. They followed Scripture. They honored Scripture. They held Scripture as extremely sacred. And Jesus is saying, you're this guy who's going to wake up one day in Hades and realize you have missed it. And here's the catch, because here's the reality. I know for for the majority of us in this room, you hold Scripture very high. You probably wouldn't come to church here if you didn't, right? Or you would hate me or something. I don't know. Because we talk a lot about the Bible. We hold it up as authoritative and true, right? So you're probably here because you believe that. But here's the catch. And here's something we have to be very careful about. You can love Scripture. You can read Scripture. You can study Scripture. You can memorize Scripture. You can hold it as sacred and true. And you can miss the point, right? You can still be on the road to hell. Because it's not just reading the Bible that counts. It has to do a certain particular work for it to divert us from destruction and turn us towards heaven. And ironically, it's the rich man who tells us the answer. He says, no, but my brothers need to do what? Repent. Repent. I said, I want you to send Lazarus so they will repent. He knows what is necessary. He knows what is the ultimate purpose of Scripture. It is to bring us to repentance. And here's the scary thing in our day and in our age. Uh, much like the Pharisees, um, we can love Scripture and miss its main point. Right? And not come to Scripture in order to bring us to repentance. Right? Um, in order for God's word to bring us into heaven, it must first bring us to repentance. That's the purpose of Scripture. Anything less than that is missing its core function in our life. And I'm not talking here just about you know, our conversion experience. This is its constant purpose in our life to bring us to repentance, to be changing us. That's what repentance means. It means literally a change of mind to be changing and transforming our life by confronting us with our own sinfulness and bringing us to a place where we confess those sins and we honestly want to change our ways 
because we realize that it makes us fall far short of God's glory and it is not pleasing to him. And we recognize that there's nothing we can do about that. And we, we, we see through scripture and through our failure our need for his grace, our need for the cross, right? our need for the gospel, our need for its forgiving and life-changing work. And as we uh, become aware of how fall, far short we fall, right, we call out to God for his mercy and we find it in the cross <clears throat> and in his grace and forgiveness. That we are lost people who need a savior. Uh, it is only, Jesus says it over and over again, it's only the lost people I can save. I can't save people who don't see their lostness. Um, and, and through repentance, God's word changes us. As we turn away from our sin, as we turn away from the way we hate and we turn towards God and as, it's word, as the word does its work in us, it changes us. And there should be fruit of repentance. And that comes back to the, the rich man, right? All those years as he consumed his wealth on himself and lived selfishly and was oblivious, had zero compassion for Lazarus lying at his gate. It was proof that there was no repentance in his life, right? Because the work of repentance will make us compassionate with God's heart towards needy people around us. Um, so Jesus, so Abraham says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced that somebody should rise from the dead. Right? Jesus adds a new element here because they probably were not asking for that. I mean, the rich man was probably not asking for that. But Jesus says, and he uses in the language that's used here, is clearly an allusion to his own resurrection. And he's saying, look, people cannot believe in Jesus if they do not believe in Scripture. Right? If you do not embrace what's taught and revealed in God's Word, Jesus' own resurrection from the dead will not convince you. And Jesus speaks this to the Jews who witnessed his resurrection live and in person. They saw the empty tomb, and it meant nothing to them. Right? The resurrected Christ will not convince a person who does not take God's word seriously. Uh, you will not believe in Jesus if you cannot believe in Scripture. And Jesus himself knew, knows this, and he models it later in Luke. And I love this picture. Remember, after the resurrection, Jesus is on, uh, meets the travelers on the road to Emmaus, right? Jesus is in his resurrected body. It's the day of his resurrection. They're going from Jerusalem down to Emmaus, and Jesus just starts walking with them. And they're like, hey, how are you? They don't recognize him, right? And Jesus makes sure they don't recognize him. So here, here's the, get, the, get this. They are walking with the resurrected Jesus, right? And they're, they're all confused about all that's just happened. And, they're, and they're, they're even more awestruck that this stranger who's walking with them has no clue what's happened. You haven't heard about this? The whole country's in an uproar about they killed Jesus and they buried him. And, it, and now they're claiming that he rose from the dead and we just don't know what to think about all this, right? And Jesus could just say, look, it's me, right? Here's the resurrected body, right? But does he do that? He doesn't say a word. He just keeps walking and goes, oh, that's, that's interesting. Hmm, what do you know? And then he does what? He takes the scriptures and from Moses and the prophets, he does what? He explains to them his life, his death, and his resurrection from scripture, 
and the lights come on, and when it finally clicks from Scripture, they see Jesus, and poof, he's gone, right? Because Jesus knew that the only thing that can convince a person's heart is Scripture, right? It's only the Word that has the power to do that. If you will believe in Jesus, you must believe in his word. You must believe in scripture. Um, So can we do what the Pharisees did with scripture? Yes. And here's the danger that we must guard against. Here's the risk for us. We 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 can miss the point of scripture in at least one of two ways. Firstly, by twisting scripture to say what we want it to say rather than hearing truly the message of Moses and the prophets and the Gospels. Okay? And that's the, that's the danger of this whole trend to say, well, you know, God is going to save everybody. Right? We're not paying attention to what Scripture says. We are twisting and uh, altering its message, its plain and simple message, to make it say what we want it to say with what we are comfortable with, but what we like. If we use Scripture to that extent, it will fail us, right? If Scripture is to us only a guidebook for how we can live better in this life, how we can have a better marriage or how our business can be more successful or how we can be good moral people, we are missing its main point and Scripture will fail us. And we will end up uh, in a place we do not want to be. Second thing that can happen is this. We can use Scripture primarily for the purpose of knowledge and proving we are right. right? Another great danger of the church is we, we see Scripture as, as the platform for good theology. Right? And we think if we know all the right answers and we have, and, and my theology is better than your theology, that that's enough. Okay? I'll tell you the truth, the best theology in the world is worthless if it does not bring you to a place of repentance. If it does not change your life, just knowing the right answers is no help. There's not going to be a quiz in heaven, right? Praise God, right? God's not going to ask you about your theology when you get there. He's got a long time to fix it, right? A long time to fix it. And for some of us, there's going to be a lot of fixing, right? He doesn't care about that. If your theology is not transforming your life, it's wasted energy, right? It's not its point, to make you smart or better than somebody else. Its point is that it changes your life. Um, So here's the final answer. There's this great chasm, right? Uh, Why can't God bridge it? Why does it have to be a permanent separation? Well, Scripture is clear that it is permanent. Uh, But notice the rich man, right? He's there. Uh, and we know what's necessary, right? He knows what's necessary. What's necessary is repentance. Um, does the rich man want to get out of hell? Does he want to get out of hell? Notice what he says. Well, man, it is hot here. You know, is there any way I could get some mercy? But what is the mercy he wants? The mercy he wants is he wants hell to be more comfortable, right? He says, could you send Lazarus with some water? Because, man, it's hot. It's, 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 it's miserable here, right? I would like hell to be a little more comfortable. Right? He does not say, please rescue me from this. He's quite happy there, right? 
Here, here's part of the problem of why God, why this chasm is fixed. Because people want to be there, right? The people who teach universalism that someday God's going to save everybody and he's going to drag them to heaven, you need to ask people first if they want that. And the reality is they don't, right? The atheist would be quite insulted if you told him, you know, God's going to make you go to heaven, right? He doesn't want that, right? He doesn't want God. And in fact, in the, in, in the rich man's whole discussion, he never says how I long for God's presence, how I wish that I could be on your side where I could be before God Almighty. Even in hell, his mind is unchanged. His attitude towards God is unchanged. He is as selfish and self-centered as ever, and he wants to be that way. He's happy that way. He just wishes hell could be more comfortable. And most importantly, uh, you know, his attitude towards Lazarus hasn't changed. Right? He sees him as just still worthless. He still has no compassion. Um, but most importantly, he does not repent. Right? He will not repent. And he knows that's what's needed. Because he says that's what my brothers need. Right? He will not repent. And when you compare this story with the story of the prodigal son, the prodigal son came to a place of misery where he longed to be out. And, it, and what happened? It says he came to his senses and he said to himself, I have sinned against God. The rich man never says that. Right? And here's the problem. Who put the, the, the chasm there? Well, we do. right? We do. It is our stubborn rebellion uh, against God that refuses to acknowledge his lordship over our life that refuses to come to a place of repentance. People will remain in hell forever because they want to be there. God does not want them there. God has sent every imaginable warning he can. He has unpacked it in scripture every way he can. God is calling people to himself. God does not want them to be there. Hell exists because people want to be there because they live denying the reality of God and who refuse to repent. Um, How do we respond to that? Well, real quickly, there's three things as we close. Real quick. Uh, We must be attentive to the word. The word is everything, both in our own life and as we proclaim it to those around us. The only hope is scripture. Secondly, If we're attentive to scripture, meaning it's bringing us to a place of repentance, it should be transforming our life in ways that we have greater and greater compassion for those in need. We should be reaching out to needy people around us and we should be showing God's love and grace to them. There should never be a Lazarus lying at our doorstep uncared for or ignored. Lastly, those two things have to go together. Right? We should be people who are committed to ministry in word and deed. Right? Proclaiming scripture and loving people with compassion and with help. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org dot o r g